Thanks for tuning in to With You Every Step. I hope that you and your loved ones are well and healthy. This episode, I talk with Cheryl Ruthen from Johannesburg, South Africa. A warning that we do talk about racism, apartheid and slavery. So if you are triggered by these topics, please proceed with caution. With the rapid changes to daily life due to COVID-19, some of the information in this episode is now different. Just after this episode was recorded, certain parts of Victoria returned to stage three restrictions and masks have now been made compulsory for all of Melbourne and Mitchell Shire. There is a $200 fine for anyone who is not obeying these restrictions. The daily number for new cases are currently between 300 and 600 and hopefully with the tight restrictions they will start to drop again. Please look after yourselves and those you love by following the guidelines our professionals have put in place. I hope you enjoy this episode and thanks for listening. Welcome to With You Every Step, the solo travel podcast that explores, explains and hopefully inspires you to travel the world by yourself. I'm your host, Michelle Lee. Welcome back to With You Every Step. This week, I have someone who I call my South African mama bear on to join me to talk all about what's happening in South Africa. Welcome, Cheryl Ruthen. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's so good to see you in the flesh again. (laughs) I'm so glad that you can join me. I'm really curious to find out how South Africa is going through this pandemic and what's been going on over there, because every country is dealing with this pandemic in their own way. How is it? How are you? As it started in March, and I must say, when I first heard about the virus, it was only in about late February, it didn't worry me at all. And I remember one of my moms, because you know I'm a teacher, principal actually of the school, and one of the moms saying to me, you're going to have to take some actions soon. And I just thought, what is she talking about? And sure as that's probably about two weeks later, we heard of the first case coming into South Africa. Obviously a visitor, or not a visitor, um, he'd been traveling, and he was in one of our provinces in South Africa. And it started like with two and then the schools were told, around about the 16th of March, the schools, there was an announcement by the president, and it was that we were closing the schools by that Wednesday. It was a Sunday night, by that Wednesday. So we had to scramble. As educators, it was, we, we just weren't ready. For our school, no online had been put in place. It's a small school, a small private school, very intimate. You know, we, we teach small classes, absolutely no, nothing was in place. Going to go on holiday about a month later, so we then chose to pull our holiday forward and that gave us uh, a month to then come up with some kind of online platform because obviously now we realized that this was going to be our new reality and it was exciting scary very exciting so we chose to go with class dojo it's a platform that's used by quite a lot of teachers i think it's more a platform for inside the classroom but because we were just caught on the back foot we didn't have time to put things like microsoft teams and whatever in place We've got little kids, so class dojo, and then the other option, of course, which I only found out about at that stage was Zoom. So like we're doing right now, we then um, scheduled Zoom meetings with our children in the various grades for the various subjects. So it was very, very stressful. We were finishing off end of term or semester reports. We had to get that done. We had to organize the online schooling, not having any contact with the other teachers. We had to do it remotely. So we were really caught on the back foot, I have to tell you. Within three days, school was closed, we were all at home, and we had to do everything from home. 
That is very quick. So you only had a couple of cases when they made that call to shut down the schools? Okay, so when they made the call to shut down the schools, I think the cases were very low. I'm sure possibly even less than 50 at that stage. It was a very, very early call. If we think back now in hindsight, I kind of think that we've done the reverse. I think we were all, at that stage, to be honest, we were all rushing home. I was sanitizing everything. Not that I'm not anymore, but I think it was just fear at that stage. And, you know, it was good, but it was just very early because now that we've started opening up, the numbers have gone up to over 100,000 in these last three months or so. And people are far less careful. Everyone's become quite complacent. And I've seen that. And I kind of feel so. So we kind of did, we kind of did this with our complacency. So you went down. Places are, correct. And then went back yes. up. <laughs> so this is not visual. People <laughs> can explain. <laughs> That's interesting. So you shut down the schools for a month, right? And did anything else shut down at that time? What happened was the schools were told, okay, at that time, that's, that's it, no more schools. And then I think it took about another week or so before they announced full lockdown. And we were still on very low cases, far less than, I think, maybe 200 at that stage. The numbers were low, very low. On so schools first, then about 10 days later, it was a full-on lockdown. That was everybody at home. Only essential services were allowed to operate. Most companies told people who were working to take their leave at that stage. They would give them paid leave. And then, of course, when it was extended, a lot of people went on to unpaid leave, which has not been pleasant at all. People still scrambling to try and get back. Some of our services, personal services like hairdressing, are still not back. They've been without income for uh, almost 100 days now. So that's nail, personal massages, all those kind of people have not earned an income. They've just allowed them to go back. This last week, I think, in fact, very socially distanced. It's been a nightmare. nightmare. And has the government given any subsidies to anybody to help with finance? From our history with apartheid, um, we, we were given a lot of help and a lot of huge business businessmen, historically, people who actually, I suppose, were capitalists and did make a lot of money, millions and billions of brands, these well-known people. The Ruperts, and then there was another family, I can't think of their names, it was a Stain family as well. They contributed billions, like a billion and a billion or two billion, whatever it was. There was a lot of funding given from other countries and from the WHO, I think, I'm not sure, all these organizations around the world gave our governments billions of grants, right? Sadly, I don't think it's reached some people, poorer people in some areas, but we do have a, a lot of reservations about things like suddenly companies were selling. PPEs and sanitizers and whatever you and these new companies are all springing up all over the show. And we are, I am very skeptical about where some of that money has gone. I don't feel like it's reached like, it's like a middle income person. And even some of our poorer, because I'm, I would classify myself as a middle income person. And then a lot of our poorer uh, sectors of the population, they just stand in long queues to get food parcels. But for example, my Cornelia, who's my helper, comes into work. She never got a food parcel, anything like that. So we continue to pay these helpers who come in. They work as domestic helpers. We pay them sometimes, not in, some of us in full for the first couple of weeks. But then as we weren't earning, then we also started like reducing the amount that we were paying. So everyone has suffered. Everyone has suffered in some way or another. So when you said essential services that are open, was that just supermarkets, doctors, hospitals, were any other stores yes. open? Like, could you go out and buy a microwave if you needed to? Not at all. Not at all. No. But even in the supermarkets, they actually closed off. 
the sections that sold anything that wasn't essential. They actually closed it off. So you couldn't buy, if your kettle broke or whatever, you couldn't buy a new kettle. So they taped it off in the supermarkets. Wow, that's so interesting. We totally never did that here. All of our big businesses still stayed open, like our Kmarts and Target, all those places, because mm-hmm. here they were considered still essential because you needed, my actual microwave busted during our lockdown and I was lucky enough that I could go get it We never had any of those things shut down here. Our schools in Victoria were one of the last things that actually were getting shut down. And they were doing that, they said here, to give the teachers time to be able to prepare for online learning. And our cases were getting higher and our kids were still in school. A lot of people were saying that needs to happen. They eventually did and they stayed home for quite a while. They're back at school now and they, they did online learning for a while. It's just been in this past week that in Victoria, our numbers have started to spike again. We're the only state in Australia that has numbers. The rest of Australia has been able to basically get rid of it. But we had a very different tactic than most countries, it sounds. So it's quite interesting talking to people and see what their countries did. So when you you opened back up, how long were you in lockdown for to when you opened back up that your numbers then skyrocketed? Went down into lockdown middle of March and then I'm trying to think we went back to school yeah so we had our holiday for, for like four weeks and then we had online learning for about so you can work it out more or less so that was to the middle of April and then we had online learning for about seven or eight weeks before and then even then literally we were ready to go back to school on the Monday and this is what the government keeps doing every time they make announcements and suddenly on the Saturday night I got information from other schools that they put a halt to the schools going back they said, no, they're not ready. There's not enough PPE. There's not. We were all ready. We'd, we'd had our training. We'd been in at school. We put all the taps and sanitizers in place. We were ready with everything. And literally on the Saturday night, so we had to tell our parents on the Sunday night before the Monday when we were due to return, sorry, but there's no going back to school. Oh. It, was, it was awful. So then we spent the Monday and Tuesday trying to find out some more. Then apparently they said, if you're small enough and you are ready, so we just... We just took a chance, really. Drew up a letter. We took it to the nearest department. People were so busy there. People were queuing. Somebody just stamped it. Somebody randomly stamped it. And we opened up on the Wednesday. And we ran school until last week. So that was early early June, if I remember correctly. And then we ran school for about two and a half, almost three weeks, before we had our first COVID case at school of a little boy whose mom had it. He was tested positive and gave us the results on the Sunday. We informed the whole school because... You know, transparency is very important. And then because he was in stage eight, the children in that class, there are only eight of them. Some of them chose, the one who sat closest to him, although they socially distanced, she went to go and get tested. And on the Tuesday afternoon, she resolved, came back positive as well. So that's when we closed the school and we've now in quarantine or self-isolation away from school for the next two weeks until next Tuesday, just to, yeah, just to play it safe. But I'm noticing, and I have to be honest with you, because you know, I've taught at a couple of schools and I have colleagues at schools that this is unfortunately what's happened. I think your approach was much better because we just shut down like that so early when the numbers were so low and uh, scrambled to do the online learning rather than keeping them, getting all of the systems in place like you did. Uh, we now, as we're going back, getting COVID cases quite quickly. All the schools are experiencing these little peaks and two cases and so many teachers and so many children and they're having to actually close down or send grades home, whole grades home. And I think this is where we're headed. And the head of campus, you know, I'm the principal, I've got to work with the head of campus. She made the statement last week when she said to me, 
we're going to have to look at this very carefully because we can't keep coming back and keep opening up and closing down and opening up and closing down. And, and this is what we, we fear is going to happen because the numbers are just, they, they're going exponentially now. And Gauteng, where we live, is quickly becoming the epicenter for South Africa. It used to be Cape Town or the Western Cape, and now the epicenter's moved here because this small province, the smallest province out of nine, does have about 40% of the population and the economic activity here. It's a hub. It's our economic hub. The, the common thing that we keep hearing through the news and everything is that it doesn't tend to go from child to child, but in your case, it definitely did. And so that's the only communication they had was being at school next to each other, correct? They didn't go to each other's homes and... No. 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 Uh, what I can also tell you, and this I have to say this with a bit of a heavy heart, is that the first child who was diagnosed, I mean, tested positive, they told us on the Thursday before his mom was tested positive, but the week before that, I sent him home with a high temperature of over 38, and his mom was only tested a week later. And in those days leading up to the high temperature, he had told his homeroom teacher that he'd been going to his madras, which is his school, you know, where they do their, where they learn about Islam and all the rest. And he said, and they had not been social distancing and they'd not been wearing masks. I have to share that with you. So we can only think that he possibly had contracted it there. His mom had bronchial pneumonia. This is speculation, but I think it's a hard likelihood because that was a week before his mom was diagnosed and he'd given it to her. And then he only went for the test because she'd been tested. It was a procedure, standard procedure, because of her bronchial pneumonia, she had to be tested. And then, of course, was tested just a day later, was, yeah, was tested and diagnosed as positive. Can anyone get tested or do you have to have specific symptoms of COVID to be tested? Okay, so I then chose personally to go and be tested because I'm one of the COVID officers and I removed him that week before. We showed the high temperature. I removed him with my plastic PPE, visor and all the rest to monitor his temperature in our isolation room. You have to have an isolation room. I put him in there waiting for the parents to come and collect him again. And I just, and some of the other teachers also went. We all went to be tested. So when I went, I needed a doctor's note. I just popped into my doctor quickly and they just issued me with a note, official form that they've got to fill in. So it's just because I was worried, but I tested negative, thank heavens, uh, for now. And so did the other teachers who had been in contact with him. Uh, and I think it's because at our school, we have really been strict about protocols. Unfortunately, the granny of the little girl who was tested, in that same week when the boy went home with a high temperature, had contacted me to say, please, when we are teaching, the little boy is being quite naughty and he's taking his mask off. Could I please check that? So the granny was quite concerned about that. And when he came back a week later with a doctor's note, this with us, unbeknown to us, had not been tested yet, we had to accept him back because you can't stigmatize, you can't say, you can't insist that he goes for a test. Apparently in that same class, two teachers then told me they both had to reprimand him about him taking his mask off and not wearing his mask. So do all the children have to wear masks? Yes. Ah. So everyone is wearing masks in public? Yes. Is yes. that the law? That's the law. Oh, That's the law. okay. And I'm driving through town, which is a central business district. I am seeing people with masks pulled down. I am seeing people with no masks on, but it, it is the law. And in fact, when you walk into a shop, it says outside, you have to. It's, it's compulsory. Okay. So you may not enter the mask on. Yeah, it's not good. We don't have any law here in Australia that we have to wear them. Our numbers are still very low. I don't think, I think we've just possibly hit maybe over 9,000 cases for all of Australia for the whole time. So I don't think we've even oh. hit 10,000 cases yet. 
And we had 75 new cases overnight, which is the highest that we've ever had, well, that we've had in a long time in Victoria. So we got down to like four, eight cases a day. And now they've gone up a little bit because we've had some outbreaks. Contact tracing. Are they doing contact tracing over there? Yes. Interestingly enough, I had to list the people on, on a piece of paper when I went for my test that I've been in contact with. Now, you know, Shell, if I had to list all the people I've been in contact with, I would have to fill in about three sheets because of school, right? Yeah. Just I just filled in three because like my husband and two of the teachers who I knew were going for tests. Nobody questioned, nobody asked. They haven't been contacted. So I don't think that the follow-up and the checking is as prudent as it should be. And our numbers started very low as well. You know, every day of the day, the increase was like, you know, lower than 10 in the early days. And then it climbed a little bit higher. Then it got to 60 or 70. And at the moment, it's five, 6,000 a day, new cases. That's not good. Not at all. Not no. at all. Uh, businesses are starting to open up, even though the cases are rising. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are. So we moved to level three about two or three weeks ago. And that's all business uh, businesses open, except for all these personal massaging yeah. nails here. Body people. to body. And they yeah. were, that's it. That's it. They were given that go ahead. I think last week, like I said, a little bit after they said that stage three could go back. But like I said to you earlier, apparently uh, there is talk of us going back to level four, which just means that a lot of people's incomes are going to be cut again. Oh, that's terrible. We were lucky enough in Australia that our government are pretty amazing. They really are. They stepped in, they've given packages to businesses to be able to help them. We've got something called JobKeeper, which is paying our wage. So our, it goes to our boss and then our boss pays us. So even the three months where I wasn't working, they I was still making a wage. They claim from our government's unemployment fund, uh, which we all contribute to if you work, you pay unemployment. And sometimes they don't get paid and then they do get paid or it's being very irregular, very erratic. So people have really, um, it's, there's a lot of suffering, sad. It's extremely sad, especially when a government has been given lots of money and you seem to think that it's not being passed on to the, the right people that need it the most. Mm-hmm. So the, the time that you were in lockdown, what were you doing? Were you keeping busy or were you just trying to get all the work ready for your school? As a principal, I'm sure the, the pressure on you is quite high. Yeah, the pressure was very high. So, uh, yeah, I worked on the reports because those had to go out. I did bake. Uh, I love baking, so I did lots of baking. Yeah, spent time with my husband, real quality time. And I used to say to him, we're going to wish for these days again. Let's make the most of them. You know, I always have the half full glass kind of approach to things. Yeah. And then we started working on the online, preparing for the online, because like I said, we were put our pants down for the online. And so we, we started preparing for that. And then we went into online learning. And so that school fees could get paid. I mean, it's another big thing to consider. A lot of parents have chosen, I know they have, not to pay school fees, especially for the private schools. Government school teachers still get paid by the government. So that's okay. They're okay. And that makes up the majority of South Africa, which is good. And I'm glad that they get paid. But for all the private schools, because there's no funding from the government, the fees come directly from a fee-paying parents. And many have just said, what are we paying for? And in some ways, doing the online learning, if I'm very honest with you, I can't see their reasoning. It's not, you're, not, you're not getting the same service as you would be for your child sitting in a physical classroom, getting the physical experience of teaching and learning. It's, it's not, I don't care what anybody says, it's not the same. You can zoom yourself until you're blue in the face. No matter what you do, you set the pages, you send the pages, complete the pages. You're not seeing those nuances. They can't see your face. 
it's it's just not the same. No, it's not the same. Yeah. Well, that's that's nice that you got to spend time. I mean, there's got to be a positive to it, isn't there? That you got to spend some time with your husband and enjoy baking and cooking, which is always fun. And I'm going to ask you for a recipe a little bit later. <laughs> we met. Well, it was actually Miami, wasn't it, where we first met? Yes, it was in Miami, standing in a line waiting to get onto a ship. Onto a cruise ship. Yeah, (laughs) I was standing with a mate and you guys were behind me. Behind? Yeah, you were behind Mm. me, weren't you? And I turned around and then we just started talking and that's it. Our love was formed in that moment. (laughs) Mm. And we've been friends and I flew over to Africa to go to your beautiful daughter, JD's wedding and I had a beautiful time and I got to experience South Africa. Took me around to show me parts of Johannesburg, which is where you're from. And I found it really eye-opening because I personally didn't know much of South Africa's history at all. And I think a lot of people, especially my friends in Australia, the people that I've spoken to, don't know the differences with race. And I think with Black Lives Matter at the moment, it's a really big topic And can you explain a little bit about apartheid? Because I'm sure a lot of people don't even know what apartheid was and how how recent it actually was. Right. So apartheid is an Afrikaans word for apartness, if you like, separating. With the government who came into power, they were called the National Party in 1948, eventually by 1948, they passed the rules that governed this apartheid system, which we were going to live with until 1994 when Nelson Mandela became president of our new democratic South Africa. So I grew up during the days of apartheid. I was born during apartheid. I know going to school as a young girl, you know, because people were separated into different areas and different race groups, we didn't go to school with people of colour. I went to a school that was classified as a white school. Everything had to be classified according to race. Where you lived was classified according to race. Schools were classified according to race. And sadly, many people of colour did not receive the same education. The kind of education that was going on in what we call the township schools, which is an area that was especially allocated for people of colour, was of a much lower standard. It's more vocationally kind of oriented and wasn't really planned or was, was not going to allow those people to eventually go on to tertiary education. But some did. So if they were lucky enough somehow to get scholarships or somebody who would sponsor them, Fitz, where I studied, was a very liberal university. There were some universities at the time. Also, there was Fort Hare, I think was another one, where people of colour could go and study. So that's where the likes of people like Nelson Mandela would have. I'm not sure where he studied, actually, but there were opportunities, fortunately, still, where people were going to, were able to do that. And yes, we lived like that. I lived not really knowing and not understanding until I went to that where my eyes were opened to what was going on and to the rest of the world because everything was censored. Uh, very eye-opening for me at that time, being a young 18-year-old, and then I was allowed to vote in what they call the referendum in about, I'm trying to think, it was probably about 1982, 1983, just after I left school. As an 18-year-old, being given the vote, I could decide whether or not we wanted things to change. It was called a yes or no vote. It was called a referendum, a special vote about having a change in the country. And I voted yes, we needed the change. People will still today say to me, oh, but you were one of the people who voted yes. And it's like, well, we had to. We had no choice. How could you continue depriving people of the, the rights of just human rights, just because normal. of the color of their skin, right? That that's what it was. It came down to the color yes. of their skin. So if I fast forward, because obviously that's all changed now to the present. Obviously, we still have this race. The race difference is still there. As much as you, you know, we we, we are in a democratic country and everyone gets to vote now. There's still huge inequalities, huge. 
And with the Black Lives Matter movement, I can tell you, strangely enough, in the very schools that allowed people of color, which I find quite strange, it just shows how young people are a little misinformed, I'm not sure. When this all came onto the scene, there were children in those schools, past pupils actually, who were demanding change in, in private schools. We kind of call them old WASP schools, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant schools, who traditionally they had allowed children of colour because of you know, Catholic schools, Anglican schools. And I don't think these younger, the younger generation are aware of that. I'm not sure if they are, they've forgotten, but they were fighting to have certain things removed and to have constitutions rewritten. There's a famous school in Cape Town called Bishops, a very good old-fashioned school, um, old waspish school, where they had a protest, all the matriculants, those are the 18-year-olds, pages of a document that they presented to the school where they wanted to see change immediately. So it did trigger off all of this, which tells me that we still haven't quite dealt with the differences. And sitting now, I mean, almost 30 years down the line, there are still issues and there are still problems in South Africa. Oh. It was the first thing I noticed. So the division between white people and black people, it was such a big difference from the communities that white people would live in compared to the communities that the black people live in. It's massive. I'd never seen anything like it. You go, oh, okay. So because of your color, you must live in this area, but they don't have to anymore. Right. And not everybody does. Like there are black people that live in the gated communities. Okay, so in the suburb where I live, and I have lived for 32 years, so if you if you work that out, that was just before the end of apartheid, where obviously in those days it was white people and it was allocated as a white area. That has changed, fortunately, and people of colour have moved into the area. I would say that at the moment about 40% of the families are people of colour. But remembering again that these would be people who are kind of middle to wealthier people. Sadly, if you look at uh, the ratio of our population, and if you take it by class, remember that a huge proportion of our population are still very poor and live in poverty. And the other problem that faces South Africa, huge one actually, is the fact that we have also had a lot of people from neighboring countries move into the country and set up these shacks of the informal settlements because they've come here with no work, with no place to stay, just for looking for a better life because South Africa has a much better economy than many of our neighboring countries. So they've added to the population numbers, unfortunately, which means that everyone's out there buying for jobs, buying for houses, buying for schools, and it has added a lot of pressure to South Africa. But there's also a massive difference in pay rates, isn't there? No, so, so it used to be, so it was, it was called the color bar. So back in the days of apartheid, if you were a teacher, for example, you were paid a certain rate if you were a white teacher. If you were a black teacher, I think there was definitely a difference in, in, in the salaries and wages. But obviously, since apartheid, that's all changed. And what I can also say, which is another interesting problem that has arisen, you might find this one quite interesting, is that with all the, the rules of apartheid falling away and with South Africa now with the new democracy trying to, to garner more equality and to get rid of the inequalities, they have put things in place which is called affirmative action, BEE, which is black empowerment. So you know, people of colour are actually more favoured for getting jobs now in certain sectors. But again, you see, you've got to always look at the numbers. That's always the problem, okay? So they, they are more likely, which has also resulted in many of the older people from the previous regime, white people who were given severance packages and were paid to, to retire, early retire and so on, have ended up now also living in poverty. So we have what we call poor whites, which we did have about 100 years ago when we had the drought and the Great Depression where people came into cities looking for work and also set up these shacks 
machaca informal settlements. We're going kind of back to that again because of the reverse kind of approach that there is now with work in South Africa. But yes, granted, we still have, just because of the numbers again and because of our struggling economy, we still have a lot of poor people in many areas of South Africa. So lots of poverty and it's across the spectrum now. It's, you, you can't kind of categorize it into just races anymore. It's just it's a lot of poverty. Mm, I was blown away with it and you were, you took me to the apartheid museum and I knew nothing about apartheid. It's a great museum. So if you ever go when we can travel the world again, if you go to South Africa, it is to Johannesburg, it is worth going into and seeing. When you first enter, they give you the pass, don't they? And they tell you, you go in this entrance and you go in this entrance. We had to go into separate entrances. And it was to give us an example of if you were someone that was of color or if you're a white person, you get to go in different ways. And we actually didn't like it. We were really struggling with it. I know Cheryl kept saying, I don't like this. I want to be next to you. I don't like being above you. I said, I know, but it was a really good example mm. of how life was. And it wasn't that long ago. This only mm. stopped in 1994, right? Mm. It blows my mind that people were still being treated that way up until 1994. And I also, well, I yeah. had to leave some sections of the museum because I found it, I found it too confronting and too, too hard to understand that people could treat another person that way. And for anyone that mm. doesn't stand up for the Black Lives Movement, need to do more research and need to open their eyes because this stuff has been happening for a very long time and it's up to everybody to have a voice and say no more and it's not going to be accepted and as a as a principal what things do you have in place to make sure that those things aren't happening okay, so to be honest with you current day like principal in a school and i mean I've, I've taught in schools from the days of apartheid up to the present things are very different today shall and um, children are not aware of the color issue anymore at all oh, um which is lovely um yeah they're really not they have grown up in the new south africa the democratic south africa so if i take little car my grandson even my own daughter really because she was born during apartheid and then has continued to grow up during during the post-apartheid so she's kind of a bit of a mixture there's there's there are no issues with those children and with new grandchildren new little children that i'm teaching at the moment in terms of race they treat each other very equally but I'm in a very sheltered little school so I did teach at a school interestingly enough I've got to share this one with you when I left the Catholic school I was teaching at also in those days that was about four years ago also completely interracial but Catholic schools have always been to be honest so completely interracial you know everything was completely mixed there was just no issue there was no issue very rarely did you get it I remember dealing with one disciplinary procedure once I was called in uh, as the vice principal where a boy had uh, used a defamatory word. We had to then call the parents of both families in and we had to then discipline the boy. It was unusual. We could tell though that that word would have come from home. So I think again, it is determined by your parents who are adults who like myself did grow up through the, the era of apartheid and what decisions have they, have they made since then? How, what are they doing? Have they carried that baggage with them? You know, are they, are they instilling that preconceived ideas in you as a child? And that's what I got from that discipline. I do remember that. With, with that, I mean, I keep going back to the fact that it is so recent to 94, mm -hmm. but I kind of think that people that are brought up in that, in a way you're brainwashed into thinking that that's the correct way. 
And like you said, you didn't know that the rest of the world wasn't living like this. So how, mm. how do you change that mindset from someone that's been told that their whole life? How does that change? Like, how did you know that that wasn't correct? What was it that taught you that? When I thought back on my own childhood, I can remember going to the shops with my dad, who was an MP supporter in those days, because that's what you did. It was like, you know, it was the main form of government to introduce the apartheid. And um, I remember going into shops and I remember coming out. I must have been all of seven or eight years old, but the memories are clear. They're vivid. I remember coming out and seeing a little girl with her dad outside, a little black girl, a girl of colour outside. And I'd just been inside with my dad and she wasn't allowed to go into that shop. I don't know what my understanding was at the time, but I remember giving her my sweets. And it's not the only memory I have. That one's vivid, but there are lots of memories like that I have. So I, what I'm trying to tell you is that as a person, and possibly because my parents were good people, uh, they were quite brainwashed. My dad, I remember, being Afrikaans. If you were Afrikaans, you were definitely a National Party supporter. He also, when I went to varsity, I would have discussions with him and he didn't like it. I could see he was a good human being. So although he was brainwashed, okay, I remember seeing him deal with people of colour and he didn't deal with them in a negative way or a demeaning way. So he was just a good person. And I think that was instilled in me and therefore something in me growing up just made me think that there was something wrong. And fortunately, at that young age, when I started studying and going to such a liberal university, I then realised what was wrong. I am in education. I am uh, a reader and a thinker. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I've travelled the world and I've seen other places. I've been lucky enough to do that. And I think that brought home to me when I was very young that this was wrong. It was just so wrong. Everything about it was wrong. That's why then already I could make that decision about the fact that we needed to change the government because it was wrong. And that's just been me through my heart. So I can only speak for me. I can give you an example of something that happened just recently of people that are possibly my age. They decided to make this program uh, like a big brother kind of reality show in South Africa over the last couple of weeks. And this just erupted this week. It's called, uh, in English would be quarantine with quarantine, which is Afrikaans. And just this week, one of the, the mother in the house, so they put two families in these two houses, like Big Brother, one of colour and then a, a white Afrikaans family. And the mother in the white Afrikaans family was cut from the show because she used that derogatory word in South Africa. And unfortunately, the people have said, and I, and I tend to, be, to believe and agree with them, that obviously within that family, although they hadn't used it up until that point, the fact that she could use it so easily meant that it was acceptable for that family who have children like Jade's age in their 20s, 30, where they use that word all the time. Now, you doing that today, like it's very unacceptable in South Africa. So there you go. When you spoke about the brainwashing, I think it's perpetuated with some families. And this particular family, obviously that's been perpetuated and accepted. And like that child that went to discipline at my school, I think it's, it's, it's a thing with some people that is a remnant of the apartheid, like you said, very recent past, and it's something that you're going to still struggle going forward with some people to change. It obviously hasn't for some, unfortunately. So the only thing that I can relate it to is sexism and how that has changed over the years and how men are treating women. And I can see that older men struggle with that a lot more because it wasn't what they grew up with, which is why I asked that question. Because I think when you've grown up a certain way, especially once you get to your 60s, you've been doing it for 60 years, how do you then change your, your train of thought to go, well, that's not an acceptable way of thinking anymore. As much as everybody tells you, it's very hard to change. And I guess that's why we're really trying to push it to the younger people that we have to stand up for this 
and it has to be changed. So the things that you do where, you know, they get disciplined, it has to keep happening, doesn't it? Definitely, Shal. It's just unfortunate that you kind of, you know, when those parents came in, I remember looking at them and thinking, you are the reason that this boy said what he said. You are the reason. And this is going to carry on and will carry on through his life because of what you have installed. And I mean, he's young. He's younger than Jade by at least 10 years. So what have they been doing? Why have they not made that change? Yes, unfortunately, it's we're still carrying that baggage. Some families more than others. I like your analogy with the sexism because I do believe like you said, that if you were raised as that kind of a man who came from that traditional kind of a background where women was, you know, were best in the kitchen and barefoot and all that kind yeah. of that kind of all those have, things that I would not allow all anyone those things. to say to me exactly. anymore. Exactly, exactly. If you were raised in a home that um, kept on making divisions and comments and whenever you went out out and whatever you did and made these observations and said the things and instilled in your head that we are different and that races are, you know people are different then obviously your children are going to be growing up like that brainwashed like that and how can you expect any change how can you yeah well thank you for talking about those very serious issues with mm -hmm. me I'm glad that you're so open and honest with it because it is a very, a very sensitive topic. And I really appreciate the fact that you're explaining those things and going into detail with it. So let's just lighten it up a little bit now. And I just want to know a little bit about your traveling. So is the border shut in South Africa currently? Yes, yes. So they, they shut the borders. A lot of people were struggling to get back. They had to repatriate quite a few people stranded all over to get them back to South Africa, but they haven't opened the borders yet. So yeah, there's no chance of travel. And yeah, that's quite sad, but it's a reality. I mean, right now, you know, none of us can afford to do that and afford to take this. Uh, if any of us tested positive or, or, or have the virus and don't even know it, we, we cannot be spreading it any more than it is spreading already. It's just no, too especially dangerous. Especially in Africa, especially in Africa. Mm. Actually, I did say I wanted to change the subject to something a little bit lighter, but I'm going to go back to COVID because I just have another question about the healthcare system. How does it work over there if you are sick? Do you have to pay or do you have a national healthcare system, public healthcare system? Okay, so we have, again, two systems. And this is why, you know, a lot of the inequalities have been perpetuated because, again, if you're wealthy, you can afford a private hospital where you pay because you pay or you belong to a medical aid or you have a hospital plan that will cover you for the more expensive hospital where it's just obviously better. And then we have the government hospitals where in fact people have to ship their own blankets and the national health service, whatever you want to call it in South Africa. Is Sorry, just did, you, did you just say you have to take your own blankets? Yeah, so even before COVID, I know of people who if they were going into the hospital would take their own sheets and blankets. Not every hospital. So, you know, I don't want to generalise, but yeah. certainly... Some sections of some hospitals are better than others, but I do know of people that have to take their own bedding. The bedding was either absent or just not up to scratch, you know, so you'd have to do that. And I have been to, my last helper went in for a hysterectomy uh, at one of the hospitals probably about, trying to think about 12 years ago, and I went to go and visit her. And that particular ward was quite good. But I remember taking her some juice and some food and, and what have you. But on my way, walking through the corridors to get there, I hadn't been in a national hospital for a number of years, probably for about 15 years. And I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, may I never end up in one of these. Please, God, let me not end up in this hospital. I remember thinking that clearly. For some reason, the particular section where she was was quite nice. I don't really know how it works. I'm just fortunate to be in the fortunate position of 
being able to afford to go to a private hospital. So do most people from a middle-class family pay for private health insurance? Yes. So we belong to what we call a medical aid and it does cost quite a lot. In fact, for my poor mom and dad, who you know, and I passed both of them, one of the things they, they cut away everything else, they cancelled all the other policies. But the one policy they did keep was their private medical aid policy. In fact, it's used up most of my dad's pension. He hardly had anything left after that was paid every month because it's quite expensive. But they had to because they knew that they just could not land up in one of our government's hospitals. So the government hospitals are free. You can get health care if you need it, but they're just the quality of the facilities aren't very good. Absolutely. You are, you can stand in queues. Uh, people look at the moment, they're not doing any of those elective surgeries anyway. Uh, people who use the government hospitals go to local clinics to get care. Again, have to queue. Um, at my school, we have a, a young lady and she's of colour and she can't afford medical aid. We don't have any aid for any of our teachers at the school, but she doesn't have um, access to medical aid. I mean, her little boy, he's almost two, when she has to go and have him inoculated, then she'll often say to me, please, Cheryl, you know, I need to take my little one, so I won't be in tomorrow, and often it takes like a whole day. It's not just a case of going and getting the shot and coming out, because you're, you're sitting in queues and you're waiting in line, and that's the pressure on the system. Do you have to pay in excess? How does it actually work? If we were to go into hospital, most of the time, it depends on, you have different levels of medical aid schemes. So you could get like a, a low level where it doesn't even include uh, any doctors or any medicines, only hospital, then they'll cover the hospital in full. Uh, and then you'll get another scheme. So it depends. It's different. You'll go like, so from the bottom to like gold and platinum, that's how it works. So just, it all depends. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. That's interesting. I mean, Australia has, has a similar system where you can have a private health insurance as well as the public system. But our public system here is phenomenal. I personally have only ever gone public. I've never gone private. And it is top notch. Mm. I've had my own room multiple times just by luck. And the healthcare professionals are top notch. So we are extremely lucky here in Australia. Makes you want to move here, doesn't it? Cheryl, I see it in your eyes. Yes. Do you have a recipe for me? You said you like to bake and I am on my little cooking show with Mr. Troy Larkin. If you have not seen mm -hmm. my last one, you need to go onto my Instagram or my YouTube. It is with you every step and watch Troy and I trying to make some cookies and we are going to try and cook whatever my guests tell me. What do you have for me? It's called a malfa pudding. It's a dessert. Malfa or Malva with a V or an F? So we say Malfa, but yes, usually like people who are visiting South Africa will say Malva because that's how it's spelled. <laughs> that's why I asked because I thought it was spelled that way. So Malfa. Malfa, yes. Malfa. Okay, I got to get my South African accent good. <laughs> that's it, that's it. <laughs> it's a sticky, it's like a sticky toffee cake pudding. So Sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, I could tell you, I think off the top of my head, uh, if I get it right. I hope so too, because I'm going to try and cook this from your recipe from the top of your head. So if it's a flop, at least okay. I can blame you. <laughs> <laughs> so are you ready? You'll preheat the oven to 180 degrees Celsius. Yep. Do you work with Celsius? I sure do. Okay. So then you're going to take a cup of sugar, just normal granulated sugar, yeah. okay, with an egg. Okay. You're going to beat it, right? Do you use a hand mixer or how do you beat it? Just with a... You can use a little, you can use a little electric beater. Yeah. It's good. So with an egg, right? 
Then you're going to add two tablespoons of butter or marge. Butter is always good for baking, I believe. So two tablespoons. Melted? Melted butter? No, no, just like that. Two tablespoons of apricot jam, smooth apricot jam. Ooh, apricot jam. Okay, Okay. I'm this. (laughs) Okay, we'll beat that up. You'll, you'll see the butter, if it's not soft, will make little bump, little lumps. It doesn't matter. Okay, it doesn't matter. Eat it all up. Then you're going to have uh, add two tablespoons of vinegar. Oh, white vinegar. Brown's also good. Brown's probably better if you've got brown. If you have white, it's also okay. It'll be the same thing. So brown or white. And then into that, you need to put kind of a flat teaspoon, not too much, of flat teaspoon of bicarb. Bicarb soda, yep. Yeah, bicarbonate of soda. You mix that up. You yes. add a cup of normal flour i make it quite a heaped cup i don't make it a flat cup it's a bit more than the sugar do you sift it no no sifting it's the easiest no recipe no sifting chuck it in there easiest recipe chuck it you chuck everything together it's the easiest recipe in the world oh i like this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. heaped cup of cake flour it doesn't have to be self-raising because the bicarb does its own thing cup of milk but just a cup of milk beets right it'll come out like a a runnyish kind of mixture okay, okay yeah you then Pour it into quite a small oven, you know, like a flat oven pan, rectangular kind of. If you've got like a, a glass one, you know, Pyrex one. Do you know what Pyrex is? No, but I'm shaking my head like I do, aren't I? I'm like, yes, but I have okay. no idea what that means. So it's okay. like an oven, like an, like an oven baking dish. It can be corning okay. where a smallish one. I, I often double the recipe if I'm having a lot of people. But okay. if it's you just making it for a couple of people, the amounts that I've given you are good. So you just pour it into a smallish dish. Yep. So that it's kind of, you know, it should be, the dish should be just big enough so that it's kind of, you know, two, two centimeters maybe deep in the dish. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, so not very high. So about an inch. Uh, yeah, something like that. So, no, the, no, the dish can be quite high, but I'm saying for it to expand, you know, it should be, the liquid should go in, yeah. the mixture should be in about, yeah, about a two centimeters. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm with you. I'm get you. I get you. I'm, I'm okay. up to date. Yeah, and then, yeah. Okay. Then you bake it for about 40 minutes. 40 minutes, okay. Like a crack in the middle and it goes lovely and brown, like really brown, okay? Then it's just finishing off. Well, you can see that it's, it's baked, okay, which is just towards the end of the 40 minutes. You're going to, in the microwave, just take some, whatever, jug, a little jug, microwavable jug. You're going to put some cream in, just a small, small cup of cream, small, not too big, small. What do you mean by small, like half a cup of cream? Uh, yeah, about three quarters maybe. Okay, three It quarters. depends on how moist you want it. This is, this is, Preference. This is oh, purely like preference. <laughs> yeah. So if you like moist, make it a small cup of fresh cream. Pour it into a little jug. Oh, hold on. Sorry. Sorry. I just want to clarify. A small cup is a cup, like a, a measuring cup. Is that what you mean? One cup. Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. yes cool. Because right, yes. my your small cup and my small uh, cup may not be at the measuring. No, no. It's of a, a measuring cup. cup. Okay. No, yep. No measuring cup. And then you take about uh, a third. Again, purely on taste a third to half a cup of sugar. So I understand if you're going to take half a cup, it's going to be very sticky uh, with a teaspoon of butter. And then if you have, add a teaspoon of caramel essence. That's another secret thing I added over the years. I never used to caramel do that. Caramel essence? Get, yes. You, like, you know, like you get vanilla essence. Do you yeah. get vanilla essence? Yeah. You get caramel as well. Ooh, you buy caramel. Okay. Mm. I'll have to go looking for that. Mm-hmm. So you, you, get, you add a teaspoon of caramel essence. You boil that up in the jug. Be very careful because it tends to overboil if you're not watching it. Because like milk over, you know, overflows, mm-hmm. cream does the same. So keep stirring it and keep watching it. And then as soon as it's all melted, the sugar's dissolved and the, the teaspoon of butter's dissolved and everything's mixed, 
make a pre-mixture, take your dessert out, pour it over. Straight away. Yes, straight, as soon as you take it out of the oven so that it sinks in immediately. And then what I normally do is to save electricity and all that. I put it straight back in the warm oven and just switch it off. And then okay. it goes brown and stickyish, brown and stickyish. And then you can serve that. So you just leave it like that to do its thing, just to soak in. You can bake it a bit more, but I find I don't need to. Oven's hot enough, just put it in, it'll do its thing. And then you serve that with hot custard or cold custard and, or cream or ice cream, anything. Anything goes with it. It is divine. It sounds delicious. Divine. Do you serve it hot? Hot. has to be hot. Oh, has to be hot. I want to eat it now. Real, yes, it is a real winter. Yeah, and it's, it's always a hit. It is always, always a hit. When people are coming to my house, um, often I get asked, Auntie Cher, are you making your, your Marlboro pudding? Wow, I'm a bit disappointed you didn't make it when I was there, but that's okay. I will forgive you because I will make it. Oh, sorry. And then I will tell you how yes, good it is. Next time. <laughs> next time. <laughs> oh, that good. sounds delicious. Oh, I'm excited. Thank you for sharing that recipe. I love these traditional yeah. recipes that people are sharing with me. It excites me. <laughs> <laughs> so if you can't travel the world, because I know you're a little travel bee like I am, where will you travel in, say, South Africa if you need to get your travel fix? Have you got somewhere in mind that you haven't been to that you would like to go or somewhere that you just need to go back to? Yes, we had booked a, a holiday uh during the lockdown period, before lockdown happened, uh, to go to a place called Mahubas Kluif. Mahubas Kluif. It's north of us, so but it's very pretty. It's got forests and lakes, and I haven't been there before. So I had booked for us to stay three nights there. Still want to do that, but obviously not now. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. I mean, South Africa has some really beautiful parts. I know you've told me, yes, which we didn't get to go to, but you love Cape Town. And I've had some guests say that Cape yes. Town is one of their favorite places in the world. What makes Cape Town so special? So Cape Town has a Mediterranean climate, which means that if you go there in summer, it doesn't rain. So you have beautiful, clear, sunny days. And it just has, you know, it's, it's where kind of, it's the, called the mother city because it's where the settlements and the settlers first came. So it has most history, if you like, in terms of buildings and museums and those kinds of things, if you're interested in that. The old forts, you know, things like that. Yeah, so it also, there seems to be, it seems to have a more of a cosmopolitan kind of feel to it. So you won't pick up as much racism, strangely enough. What we call our coloured, uh, a very strong coloured community, which is where all the intermarrying and and what and, and with the, the slaves who came to South Africa too, where we started getting this, the coloured race started kind of, yeah, it kind of started in, in, in the Cape. And they are just the most amazing people. I have some coloured backgrounds too, my, my mom and her family. Just that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. So something you, you taught me, which is going back to the race thing again, though, is what does coloured actually mean? Because I thought when someone said coloured, it mean a black person. But in South Africa, there was black, coloured and white. Is that how it was during apartheid? So can you explain explain what coloured means? Because some people may not understand. Coloured people in South Africa, um, when, you do, when you do the races and even during apartheid, there would be like four, four categories. It would be uh, white, black, coloured Indian or Asian, actually. Or the coloured people were descendants of when the settlers came to South Africa, when they brought slaves from uh, Malaysia and you had uh, Malaysian people and people, of course, started inter interbreeding, I suppose. I don't know if want a better word because it sometimes wasn't really out of choice. You know, with slaves, often it's not. 
a bit like what happened in Nika, yeah, sadly. And then, of course, a whole community developed. And also with the local people at the time, um, they called the Khoisan people, who are almost like Bushmen people who uh, lived in the Northern Cape and lived around that area at the time. Also, some of them became slaves or there was also just in intermixing and a whole, a whole generation and a whole group of people uh, developed from that. We're talking about 400 years ago. They actually were slaves. But then, of course, over the years, you know, that all changed. But this community is definitely a different, separate community to our black community, quite separate, actually. Cla uh, classify their particular group of people in their community as better than black people for some reason. Even today, they still do. It's, again, baggage that they carry from apartheid because I think there was different treatments for these people. Yeah, well, thank you for explaining that because it was, again, something that I didn't understand when I was in South Africa that you had to explain to me mm -hmm. how other countries are mm -hmm. living and the things that are unfortunately are perceived as normal in certain countries. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was something that I'd never heard before. You know, like I said, my, my mom's history was that um, everyone had to be classified in 1948. And she was a little girl and she told us she remembered because uh, her, her mom's family were actually supposed to be coloured people they came from Kimberley, which is predominantly an area for coloured people. And they all raced to Pretoria to get classified. And there was something called the pencil test, very derogatory, where they would put a pencil through people's hair. And if the pencil <gasps> fell out, then, yeah, now that's the fact. And the, the, you would then be classified white. And if the pencil stuck in, then you would be classified as either coloured or black. And her aunts and uncles, there were 10 in my granny's family, all rushed. And strangely enough, Two were classified, I think, as coloured people, and they actually married other coloured people and went to go and live in coloured, allocated areas. My granny was classified white as a white lady, so she married an Afrikaans man, and that's why then my, my mom and her siblings were classified as white, and then so were we. So imagine if that person making that decision decided to classify her as a coloured lady. I might not be sitting here talking to you today because, yeah, you know, decisions that were made by other people, strange decisions. We are approaching our destination. Ladies and gentlemen, please fasten your seatbelts for the final five. Your favourite city or town? Not even a question. New York City. You love New York, don't you? How many times have you been to New York now? Uh, let me think. One, two, three, four, five, six. I think six times. Remember, one was just to collect a wedding dress. Yes, you are a dedicated mother. Two nuts, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdest food you've ever eaten? Book draw. Not that I ate it, I spat it. Because you have these competitions in South Africa where you go to a game reserve and you literally put the, the back dropping in your mouth and spit it as far as you can. It's a competition. I'm sure you've heard about that. So No, I definitely have not heard about this. What dropping are you putting in your mouth? Dropping from a back, from a back. In a game reserve, from a bucket. They have little round droppings. They're like the size of little... Like a sheep dropping. Something like that, maybe a bit smaller. And you put it in your mouth and you all spit it as far as you can. Ew, that is disgusting. <laughs> that is a competition. <laughs> Did you win? Oh, no, 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 no. My spitting skills are not very good. So. <laughs> priceless oh my gosh I can't believe that is definitely not an answer I was expecting from anybody and I, I have never heard of that before I love that you thought I would know about it though <laughs> beaches or mountains mountains definitely a tourist site that you recommend is a must see 
I've been to Interlaken in Switzerland. And if you go to Interlaken, you have to go to, oh, what is it called? It's the top of the mountain there. You go up by cable, like a train cable thing to the top, and you see the glaciers. Uh, you go underneath into the glaciers. I just can't think of the name now. It's beautiful. But you see, you literally, there are lifts that go down into the glaciers where they've carved ice. They have all these ice sculptures embedded. Oh, I wish I could think of the name now. I can't. That's I'll try and think of it. You can mention it. Yeah, it's Interlaken, um, where you take the cable car all the way up. You have to change trains to get all the way up to the top. It's one of the peaks in the Swiss Alps. You see, you go in, literally into the depths, into the heart of the glacier. Amazing. You have to see that if you go to Switzerland. You have to. Wow, that sounds amazing. Can you say thank you in another language? A few languages. Danke in Afrikaans. Giabunga in Zulu. Yeah, I could say a few others if you like. That's amazing. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for talking to me and sharing in a very honest and raw way. And that's what I love. And I like my listeners to be able to hear people mm. telling their stories. And I really appreciate you being honest and open. So thank you so much for joining me today and talking to me. And it was such a pleasure of me getting to actually catch up and chat with you about what's going on with COVID and how you're coping and give my love to everybody. And I hope that everyone stays healthy and safe. Thank you so much, Michelle. It was lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've got granny duties to go and do now. Shame he's waited patiently for me. So <laughs> <laughs> Love you lots. Love you too. Happy birthday for soon. Thanks for listening to With You Every Step, hosted by Michelle Lee. We do hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, make sure you tell everybody. If you didn't, nobody likes a Debbie Downer. Please subscribe to get up to date with our latest releases and give us a thumbs up on our social media at With You Every Step. We love to hear from you. If you have any questions or inquiries, head to the Contact Us page at our website, michellelee.com. That's also where you'll find all our blogs mentioned in the podcast. We love to hear from you and if we have inspired you to travel. Thanks for listening. Love life and adventure on.